Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome to another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well. And as you could guess from the title, we've made it, guys. We've made it to the end of the Poppy Wars. Today, we are discussing The Burning God by R.F. Kuang. I thought it was a really strong conclusion to this trilogy charles i was saying a little bit to you already off air like that that's the way it it had to end uh, yeah. and as i'm already <laughs> talking about the end and not giving specifics yet i do want to let all of our listeners know that there will be spoilers for all three of the books in the poppy war <laughs> trilogy in this buddy read episode as there always are spoilers for the books that we're currently covering in the buddy read episodes exactly well said you know our buddy reads um the series as up to the book we're talking about spoilers are all on the table and this is the end of the poppy war trilogy and so we are going to be talking about the whole thing today we have quite a lot of dis- to discuss ahead of us but i would agree i was going into the burning god very excited to figure out how this would play out, I knew it wasn't going to be pretty, and the ending delivered for me as well. Also, um, just a heads up, I don't have a microphone with me today, so if the audio is a little different than usual, I apologize, but uh, just get that out of the way. <laughs> Should we get into spoiler territory? We're heading straight for spoiler territory right now, so uh, turn this down in your headphones if you <laughs> don't want to hear any spoilers and right. haven't finished the burning god but yet. go read so, burning guy we recommend it you it. know go read the poppy war trilogy it's very good very good yes and um come back to this episode when you're done and let's talk about it so thank you goodbye <laughs> and to the rest of you hello <laughs> how about that ending <laughs> yeah seriously i mean rf kuang really delivered in the way I think this had to end. I feel like this is a series that just has such strong themes to it. And mm-hmm. when it's a series that is so based around these themes, the way that you conclude things is how you make your statement on what you have to say. And I think that RF Kuang did it in exactly the way that you kind of had to at the end here. I agree. I knew it was going to be tragic, but I just wondered how it was going to go down. Like how many betrayals we were going to experience, like how far gone Rin was really going to go. What was she capable of in terms of violence and destruction? And I think Kwong took all those expectations and delivered on that as well as delivered on her just her themes and it was like you said earlier like the book like had to end this way and it was just it's just what Kwong was building up to over the past three books it's what she's been telling us this whole time about the character of Rin and by the time we got there it was it was really just it had this finality to it it had this weight to it and uh, I was just very impressed me too, Charles. So yeah, it's something of a tragedy in the sense of Rin, our main character who we've been following so closely throughout this series, doesn't make it through alive. Mm-hmm. And in the same sense, there's there's a tiny glimmer of hope. I mean, things are still <laughs> really crappy, right? <laughs> yeah, Very. But by the end, the world is better without Rin in it and Rin is able to make a choice to take herself out of it by acknowledging that and gets a little bit of redemption there and she also I think had to be the one to make the choice herself and is proactive in the way that she does it as she's been so proactive throughout the 
whole series. So it's it's sad to see Rin go in terms of a character that is extremely interesting to read about, but it's also a relief for, I think, us as readers and for everyone in that world because though it's still a brutal situation with the Hesperians basically making the Nikara subservient to it and Neja trying to put the pieces back together in a way that makes sense for the people it it is that relief I was talking about to have Rin out of there because she'd become such a, a monster by the end Absolutely. And that decision to end with the epilogue from Nezia's point of view, looking down on Rin's body and kind of reflecting pretty much what we're reflecting on right now was a really interesting choice. And it resulted in some really great quotes. And like you said about themes, it really tied a lot of them together. Like you said, there's this part where Nezia was like, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here because there's some um, non-family friendly words in here, but He realized dimly that he ought to be glad she was dead. He should have been effing delighted, and that's um, (laughs) italicized. And rationally, intellectually, he was. Rin was a monster, a murderer, a destroyer of worlds. Nothing but blood and ashes ever trailed in her wake. The world was a better, safer, and more peaceful place without her in it. He believed that. He had to believe that. And so that was like a... Like, this was the main character of the book we are talking about here, right? This is our, air quotes, uh, protagonist that we had been so tightly attached to. We only ever broke her perspective a few times in these, like, interludes in the different parts of this book. And then to have killed her and then to have reflected on her and been like, dude, I should be so thrilled she's dead. She was nothing but um, a horrible thing. And then he goes on to mention how she basically just destroyed everything every all the systems that were in place she burned to the ground and it's kind of like she laid the foundation for him uh, she'd burned away all that was rotten and corrupt and he goes on to say like like basically every single thing is just destroyed he's left with like i can't believe you left me with literally nothing but he does like you said take hope in that we feel hopeful even though it's a long long campaign ahead of him to do that but it's just super interesting to see how we treat our main character at the end, where traditionally in fantasy, the protagonist is like, we are, we love them and they're usually like good. And you don't really think of them as effing monsters, you know? <laughs> There's so much you said there, Charles. It's so <laughs> good, I think, like so well said. And I think one piece is talking about that Neja point of view. And I think it does such a great job of validating the reader's experience because we saw where Rin came from. And even if we don't approve of the things that she's doing by any means, by the end here, we understand her. And in some ways, maybe we hold some of those feelings toward her that Neja does some of those positive feelings and kind of, like feel bad to see Rin go, but also have this more rational understanding of the world is better without her. And yeah, such a brilliant choice to put us in Neja's point of view and therefore validate our own as readers. And I think I I kept circling back to this. I don't think I said this on the air, Charles, but I mentioned this quote to you at some point Mm -hmm. uh, that it's often attributed just as an African proverb, I, I wish I could give more specific than that as to uh, mm-hmm. where it came from. But there's a, a quote that says, a, a child that is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Mm-hmm. And I think that Rin's story is, it's basically about this, right? She was rendered so powerless by the world around her growing up that she came to desire that power and really like autonomy and control over her life to a point where she just got further and further corrupted and then was so far gone. So it it quite literally, that quote works well because (laughs) of the burning aspect of it, right? Right. Rin literally burns many, many things to the ground and we start to see that she's getting joy out of burning people, even innocence. And I think the book more than anything is about how this cycle of powerlessness 
leading to desire for power is is a vicious one and i think that's why we like we empathize or at least sympathize toward rin because we know why she became what she was by the end very well said i think kwong does this amazing balancing act with rin of like you said the the these themes that power is kind of cyclical this powerlessness desiring for power and and creating you know like this creating destruction and with us kind of rooting for rin in that way but also bringing back home this theme of like well what she's doing is part of the problem like even though we we are kind of rooting for her in a way she's always been kind of a problematic um individual creating lots of death and destruction and and yet we're still trying to the root for her and the, and Kwong has been balancing this with Rin masterfully for three books and it kind of it kind of comes to a head where she's starting to in this book even at the very beginning of this book she's starting to kind of get a little uh, unstable she's starting to you know Kwong is starting to like remove some of the veneer behind her kind of destructive tendencies like the book opens where she just absolutely levels a city mercilessly burning like her own people and as well as with um, with the enemy uh, in Kudla, K-H-U-D-L-A, is where she's like liberating this village and just destroying everyone. And she's like reveling in the, the ecstasy of being powerful and causing that kind of destruction. And that continues to the point where ultimately she's considering um, killing Kite you know, at the very end. She's like so paranoid that the only two people she's trusted, Venka and Kite, would be capable of plotting against her. And she was like planning to you know act against kite at the at the end there and it wasn't until she realized this theme of of the cyclical power and history repeating itself and all that that she had this like epiphany moment right at the end where this theme comes to a head and that's what makes this ending like the next level for me yeah it's a brilliant ending and it's i guess foreshadowed might be the wrong word here but built toward extremely well there's lines throughout and moments throughout that show you this is what rin is becoming one that stuck sure. out to me there's a quote that was on uh, 282 page 282 of my uh, hardcover that was this was chaos but chaos was where she thrived a world at peace at stalemate at ceasefire had no use for her she understood now what she needed to do to cling to power, submerge the world in chaos, and forge her authority from the broken pieces. And that bit about a world at peace has no use for Rin, I think that's exactly, so this is, I guess, almost halfway through the book. So we still have a long ways to go, and we're already being told, look, if this is ever going to reach a point where there's peace, Rin can't be there. Right, right. And then, like, there's even these lines just about, like, um, hate was a funny thing. It not had her insides like poison. It made every muscle in her body tense, made her veins boil so hot she thought her head might split in half. And yet it fueled everything she did. Hate was its own kind of fire. And if you had nothing else, it kept you warm. So this is a character who is literally fueled by hate and can only exist in a world of conflict so that when... um she does, you know, defeat Neja and take over. And then this last sex, this last 20, like 15, 20% of this book, she's trying to figure out what to do in the aftermath. Like she never even thought of it. It was always just her next campaign. Uh, I did like this little thing where she was like, we should outlaw child marriages. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's kind of a fun uh, thing because that's what started this whole mess in the first place. And uh, but she just could not kind of cope with it. And that's when her paranoia went like beyond. And then when she had no one else to lash out at, she started lashing out at the people around her. And that was a very interesting thing to see. And I think a very natural character progression for Rin. Exactly, Charles. You touch on something great there, which is these subtle, but I think pretty clear at the same time, tie-ins toward the end of when when Rin finally has the power to do something one of the first things that comes to her mind is about oh we should outlaw child marriages and I think that's when you first started to have this theme of Rin's powerlessness uh, being like 
huge toward why she decides to do the things she does. Because for her, it was always about just autonomy, being able to make that choice herself. So even in the first book, in The Poppy War, we hear Rin saying things like, yeah, it's miserable at Zinnegard, but at least it was a misery that she chose. Exactly. And she's always just wanted the opportunity to make these choices. And the fact that, okay, now I have all this power, what am I going to do about it? Uh, uh, like, what she really wants, Charles, is to try to shape the world into one that didn't render her so powerless. Absolutely. And I thought that was a, like a fun <laughs> moment there when she did that. And they were all going around like drinking and talking about the crazy laws they should pass. It's like, well, they could because they were the ones in charge. Like it almost like a bit of imposter syndrome, a bit of like, Hey, we're just finally starting to realize what it is. We actually got ourselves into. Like we have the platform now that we could, pass whatever laws we want no matter how silly because there's no one else above us to to check us out and i think that was a good example about you know how leadership and power works like you know it's just <laughs> other people that are in these leadership roles fueled by the same crazy things like rin is going through and i just thought it was a a nice you know fun way to kind of transition from the rising action to ultimately her spiraling into this paranoia you know this idea of like trying to adjust into this executive role was an interesting one and seeing her just flounder in it because yes. of the the exact stuff that we were just talking about there charles where she's a general she's a soldier she's a killer and a murderer and when those aren't the things that you need then what, you, what exactly can she do? And that's said pretty explicitly by by Neja toward the end there, but there's also the moment where she's watching those opium fields burn, and that was kind of the last chance for salvaging her her actual rulership or like her role as whatever she would have been, empress or whatever. And she has this reflection where she says, or her internal monologue says, she couldn't call her God to stop this. The Phoenix could only start fires. It couldn't put them out. <laughs> so yeah. she That's runs good. into this problem there where something is being destroyed and she needs it to not be destroyed. <laughs> and though she has the power of a God, she's helpless to actually restore anything all she really knows how to do and can do is destroy yeah that's a really beautiful piece uh, of that puzzle uh the other theme that i think that that this talked about at the end of this book that has been present throughout the whole series is like the theme of colonization and the hesperians were largely quiet throughout this book i mean their technology was ever present but it wasn't until maybe halfway into the book that there was a moment where they were interacting with like new city the hesperian technology and then at the end with neja he's like the ominous thing is like dealing with this idea of colonization from the hesperians and i don't know i i think you know given arf kwong's like academic background she's you know very much well studied in what occupation is like and what the colonization was like in in like real world history and i think a lot of that was a super interesting theme in this book i i, I think the poppy war series takes on colonization in a super interesting way compared to other you know fantasy books that i've read and you know her commitment to these total clash of ideas and I remember they're in New City and Rin is like visibly sick from seeing like the influence that Hesperian technology had on um, Nakirin, uh, you know, architecture. And then that goes all the way. It kind of has its head with Petra, which uh, we can talk about as well. But beautiful theme throughout this book as well. A huge part of this book. Totally agree, Charles. And I think it ties in well with these themes of, of power, which... Power feels a little more personal or even psychological, mm -hmm. right? This person or the, this group of people is trying to take something away from me as an individual. But the theme of colonialism, it feels like 
that's a bit more sociological or political, but it's the same idea, right? This mm-hmm. larger body of or of ideas almost or of uh, governments or what have you is trying to t- take control and exert its influence over our body of ideas, influence government, mm-hmm. those kind of thing, a culture, I, I ought to say as well. So it feels like it mirrors Rin's own personal experience that's playing out the structural level as well. That's super well said. And there's that interesting moment where she takes power, right? She's basically like a pseudo empress and she's, you know, with Petra, who was the scientist that experimented on her in Dragon Republic. And she decides instead of torturing her, she's Rin is going to take Petra to, the Pantheon to, to, to witness the gods, right? And then so Petra's like freaking out because she's seeing all these gods, right? Her, her reality is getting shattered. And then Rin has this amazing line that I think is a huge theme of this book where it's a, these are the forces that make up our world, said Rin, in referencing the Pantheon. Uh, they have no intent. They have no agenda and they do not tend toward order. They want nothing more than to be what they are and they don't care. And that's like a huge, not even just for Rin, who at this moment is coming to terms with being in a leadership position and realizing like, hey, I can do whatever I want and there's nothing that anyone can do to stop my whims or fancies. I can pass whatever crazy laws I want. And she's also kind of understanding, you know, you can say the same thing about colonialism. It's like, call it whatever you want. You just want to be what you are and you don't necessarily care about the destruction that you're causing. I just thought that was a really interesting moment and that kind of stood out at the end of this book. Exactly. Yeah, and Rin understands the Pantheon because that's what she'd always wanted was the opportunity to even if things were going to be miserable, choose her own misery. And I mean, this series gets labeled grimdark at times. Mm -hmm. And uh, you understand to some extent why because Oftentimes it feels like there's a, just a bunch of bad, brutal choices to be made. And it's it's about that lesser evil so much of the time here. Absolutely. So those are, I would say, two of the big themes here. I'm, not, I'm just still, my, my mind just keeps sticking around at the ending, you know, but I'm thinking of the moment also where this whole thing of where um, Rin has Neja uh, stab her in the heart. And then I think there was a callback line where it's like, she had the resolve for both of them. Like this idea that she, I think that that line was in Dragon Republic or maybe even in the first one, like she had the resolve for both of them being like, I'm the one that can, do these like irreversible like heavy things for both of us and the idea that she got stabbed in the heart is a beautiful metaphor and also super like dramatic for the sake of of, of storytelling but no i i think um i, I I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> transition us out of the ending but it, it's just such a huge part of this book and the series that i'm like still enraptured with it right i'm feeling the same way charles that <laughs> As, as we were saying, when a book is about certain themes and things like that, it and it has such a strong ending like this that drives those themes home, it's hard not to start defining everything else that happens in the book just by the ending and the way that it concludes. But it is important for us to make sure that we cover all of the important moments in a book that wasn't just about the destination it was about the journey too absolutely and this journey is a crazy one kwong's writing style and we've said this in the our in poppy war and dragon republic her pacing is extraordinary like she covers like we've said in the past like a trilogy's worth of plot developments into 600 pages and that is this may be the fastest pace I feel. Maybe Poppy War, the first one, was also super fast. But this one, like so many things happen. We meet so many new characters. We have so many deaths. Like plot points come and go. And like typical story structure, like you're kind of building up to this one climax. We get like four or five 
climactic moments sprinkled throughout this book. And I think uh, Kwong's ability to kind of get away from, because a lot of trilogies, it's like, yeah, you set everything up in the first book, the middle book, you're getting to the third one with the end, right? But Kwong has made all these pieces that some artists might savor for trilogies or whatever. And she's like, if I hit all of these throughout this whole book, every single moment something is happening and something dramatic is happening or a character's dying or whatever. And it, it, it makes it super, for lack of a better word, readable. And her modern vernacular, her modern writing style, her modern language, you know, she, I think when this book was like, when she finished writing this book, she was 23. So it's like such a modern, fresh take. And I, I was just, the readability of this is so excellent. And so I just burned through this and there's so, so much to talk about just because of her pace. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, just so many things. I don't know if we'll get to all of it. (laughs) No, I mean, we were talking before off the air where we're like, look, sometimes in these episodes, we try to hit all of the plot points that feel important. And (laughs) I mean, Kwong gives us so many important plot points and just sprints uh, through with this awesome pacing. And mm-hmm. I mean that in all the most positive connotations that can come off with. No, I mean, it's and... rewarding. Sometimes you read a fantasy book and you can just tell you're in between like big action pieces and you're like, oh my gosh, I just got to get to the next piece. But with Kwong, it's always something happening and she's not afraid to have that final moment 20% into the book and then just have another moment, you know? So it's like, it's like wow! Like if I came up with that many ideas, I don't know if I'd have the the um, resolve to cram it into one book. You know, I'm like these are all such good ideas. I could explore them for forever. <laughs> but no, it makes like a really solid uh, condensed story. I guess we'll take it. The book is split into three parts, so it might just be easier to just talk about um, like each part individually. Like the first part, sure. we're in, like I had mentioned earlier in the episode, we're introduced to Rin and. She, like right away all this writing about how she is just being super destructive and she's loving it and her anger is being fueled by the fire and she's in all this beautiful description of how people's bodies are melt like skins melting off their faces or whatever it's like very graphic descriptive violence and we meet soji and we talked about occupation but one of the things that i've always liked about the poppy war is how Rin has kind of navigated authority and realized, you know what, <laughs> they're not necessarily right and I can like upstage them. And one of the things I really liked watching was Rin kind of getting through Soji and also getting through the um, the monkey warlord, uh, Liu, <laughs> L-I-U, Liu, Liu. <laughs> so the two of them... Um, watching her watching her like navigate dealing with them and then eventually they try to use her and then she defeats them was a fun little story arc that only happens in like less than the first 50 percent of this book we are meet these characters we have conflicts with them and we resolve it so uh really fun moment there right it could have felt like the monkey warlord was going to be the Visra equivalent for right. this book. Obviously, Visra's still kicking around for a little while yes. in, this, uh, in this book. But the person who is... He has a very Visra-like feel to the, him, right? The way he treats Rin, the way he acts around her, patronizes her, thinks she's just this little girl, and he's this ruler with all this experience. And is interesting contrasting the way Rin sees a person like this now compared to the way she saw a person like this in the Dragon Republic where she's like, I'm past this. Like, I can respect (laughs) this guy to some extent in terms of having these qualities of a leader, Mm -hmm. but screw this guy. (laughs) Like, I know better. I can do better. I just need the opportunity. So she learns things still from people like Suji, I think even more so than the monkey warlord. And she's Mm -hmm. able to take things in from them, but she's kind of just looking for her opportunity the whole time to 
take power for herself. It's interesting to describe the monkey warlord as the new Vice-ra with like Rin, like how Rin has changed. And I would say, now that I'm thinking about it, that Soji is like the new Alton, right? It's like if current Rin were to have faced like an Alton-like character now, how would she feel? Like this is a character who is very competent, very handsome. Everyone likes him. There is some will they, won't they, romantic tension. He is a leader. He's shown to have more leadership knowledge than Rin in terms of guerrilla warfare. And so there's a lot that she respects from Soji, but she never gets... I mean, there's also a piece of they're not from the same. Like, they're both from the South, but um, Soji's not as spearly like Rin is, but he he is from the South. So I think it was... This may be Kwong's intention or not, but it's interesting to see how... Like we can see how Rin's changed by how she handles these character roles of like the the monkey warlord slash viceroy role and the Alton slash Soji role, and we know how she handles it now is she has no problems um, realizing that to get to the end of like to get to what I need, you guys need to be out of the picture, and she has no problems just eliminating them. She does like Soji does have these weird like they have these weird moments together but ultimately she is just like you don't mean really anything to me i have no problems like (laughs) killing you in front of all these people or you know what sicking sicking the crowd on you and stuff like that and so that's a good observation uh, i i see that clearly rin's come a long way (laughs) yeah and we talked about this and i think this was in dragon republic where rin goes through character growth quite frequently throughout the series that feels like growth but doesn't actually make her a better person (laughs) almost always it makes her just more brutal and more savage and more willing pretty much machiavellian right like Mm -hmm. uh, willing to do what needs to be done to get the ends that she wants and you get to see, okay, now that we've gone through all of this growth, it's exemplified in these different ways she interacts with people who resemble, to various extents, people she's already interacted with and been subservient to in a lot of ways. And for a book about power, her just seeking to wield that power in spite of any of the characteristics of the Suji or the Monkey Warlord shows this is who she is now she's all out relentless going for that power very true and i think what also helps her become relentless is there is this moment right at the end of part two where she she does try and go back to her hometown and she and it's just totally destroyed in uh, part one right i believe so right she she goes back to takani yeah and and she's searching for tutor ferrick and can't find her and um that's just, I think, a part of her being able to disassociate is she has no home now. It was described as being basically raised to the ground. And, like, she's like, oh, yeah, my stepmother and brother are probably dead. And, uh, you know, I, I can't find Tudor Farrick anywhere. He's probably gone, too. And then it's never really brought up again. She just kind of forgets about them, what she had done when she went off to Syndicate. So... I, I think that's just another detachment piece. But what happens right after that is we reunite with Daji, and that's when part two kicks off. This like this whole thing with the trifecta, which could have been yeah. this huge thing and then wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You mentioned earlier, Charles, that we get multiple climaxes and it it very much felt like the trifecta could be part of the ultimate climax of this whole thing. Right. And instead it's basically just the climax of part two uh, (laughs) that they end up being dealt with and done away with. And looking back now, understanding where this book ends up, I think that's all a piece of that, that point from Neja that she burn down everything left of the old world and for better or worse there's some chance to rebuild from the ground up here and i think that's kind of what the trifecta end up symbolizing in the in the long run is that was the old world and we're we're done with them 
Very well said. There's this moment that I love with the trifecta when they go back to the mountains, the Baoli Mountains, and um, they entomb Rin. And there's this little section where Rin is kind of realizing that she's trapped in her own body and she's like reliving her memories. It's a super interesting little piece of the story. It's such a unique voice and such a unique, like, introspective interim this kind of like crazy moment where she's totally encased in stone she she can't feel her body anymore it's like a tomb that's worse than being dead you're basically trapped and with nothing to do and you're screwed and this was a huge turning point for her it's like you said where you know rin just needed to get past the trifecta to kind of clear the stage in an attempt to reset history and there's this quote um, she should have known better than to put her fate in the hands of people more powerful than she. She should have learned many times over that everyone she pledged her faith to would inevitably use her and abuse her. And when I read that, I was like, thank you, Rin, for finally like getting to that moment because I had you know, some uh, really minor things with the end of Dragon Republic where I was like, come on, Rin, like, we're, we're past this. And she's had this history of getting infatuated with like powerful people and kind of turning a blind eye to their intentions for her. And here, I think a huge part of the trifecta arc, <laughs> this part two is being like, you know what? I'm done with this um, idea of like this infatuation with people more powerful than me. I don't need them, you know? And that's a huge breakthrough air quotes, breakthrough more like part of her descent to madness <laughs> for Rin. Right. <laughs> That's that's definitely the case there, Charles. It is very sad to see Rin. It's right that that piece again, right? That was growth. You were happy to see Rin reach this point where she realized, hey, given your life circumstances, everyone that you've ever let have any power over you has abused that. So right. you need to learn that is how we're feeling as readers. But that's a very very like cynical <laughs> way to yeah. view things right it contrasts with some of the themes of something like let's say Mistborn and I won't spoil anything for Mistborn but mm -hmm. if you've read that you know the view is a lot more optimistic that's not yeah. a spoiler yeah. on some of these ideas like trust and hope and the, the those kind of things right and in in this case the world is so dark the people around her are so awful that she has grown by learning hey anyone who gets power over me abuses that power right and it's it's brutal but it's a lesson she she kind of had to learn given her circumstances well said and this is a problem for rin right she she is what she has to be to succeed but how can you you know once you have succeeded how can you have meaningful relationships and how can you be happy if your thought process is everyone you pledge your faith to will inevitably use and abuse you you know this is almost like a foreshadowing moment for the end with venka which we never get concrete proof that she really did betray rin and then she also goes on to be paranoid about kite so between the two of them um like it's kind of foreshadowing to that. It's like now that I'm in peacetime, there's no enemies left. This is all I have left, and I I can't sustain that. I can't live this way in a world that doesn't mean, need me to be this way. And that's kind of was her come to you know her, her realization, her come to moment where she was like, you know what, I there's no place for me in this. I'm causing more conflict than I am, you know. There's there can be no peace with me around. So it's a really great moment there in the in the mountains. Exactly. And I think pretty much the first time that we see Rin's character growth actually make her a better person is, is right at the end there, which is yeah. of the whole series. Actual growth. Yeah, that epiphany yeah. at the end. And then, and then it's when she realizes she has to kill herself. <laughs> or that she has to yeah. die anyway. It's, uh, but yeah, super interesting. And, and the part two, I mean, it, it keeps going. We meet the dog warlord. He's cool. And then we go to Mount Tianshan. Tianshan and the trifecta just get like nuked out of existence and that was a 
right after like this whole thing of the um the dragon emperor right this has been something that has been foreshadowed for since all of book one in this book there was this little teaser at the beginning of part two where dodgy is like helpless and in fear uh of the of the um dragon emperor same with zhang and we've seen them both do really incredible things so we know this guy is a huge deal and rin's kind of placed all her bets at this point on reviving him and using him for this battle so when he is awoken and we see how powerful he's like whoa this is like a huge moment and then like it ends <laughs> the the Hesperians combined with Rin you know they blow up the mountain and um, the trifecta is just gone just gone and we're like you know 60% of the way into the book that was a shocking moment for me Charles I I thought that the trifecta was going to be a part of the ultimate resolution. I was like, I'm not convinced they're dead. I need to see a body. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't until we got to that uh, Chagin moment that I changed my tune. But I was still, even after that huge explosion, they're like, oh, they're dead. I was like, I can't believe it. (laughs) I can't believe it. There's still that peace. I felt the same way. I think that's why we're so used to some of these tropes like if you don't see a body and things like that mm-hmm. that we expect oh they must be coming back so i think it was really smart of kwong to throw in that moment with Chagan, who we know has a very deep connection to the pantheon and he's like no trust me they're dead and he's basically speaking to the reader i think <laughs> yes definitely because i had my doubts and it, it, i wasn't convinced until Chagan was like yeah i checked out the pantheon Same. they're 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 gone and that reunite that reunion with Chagan was an interesting one as well. He's apparently gone off and done his own thing and solved all his problems. And now he's come back to her as this leader type person. And he was giving her warnings before she went up to the mountain. Like, these people are horrible. And depending on what you do will be like how, you know, will be how we interact, right? He's basically kind of warning her. And she didn't fully take his advice at the time, but this kind of resolves when the you know the trifecta are gone he's like well thanks bye and so it was just kind of a fun a fun little reunion there i think this was more of rin another thing that rin had to just incinerate to like level the playing field you know so agreed charles that's that do you have anything to say about chagin before we get deeper into part three no i think he made it through this book which he did a rare yeah <laughs> a rare group yeah it's like him and Neja basically <laughs> yeah very uh, few characters were spared <laughs> that is the truth so part three it begins well there was this really interesting well the one thing we didn't part talk about in part two was when we were talking about colonialism she just for whatever reason i guess the academic in her just wanted to do this this little like memorandum that the that the Hesperians wrote about their like summation of the Nikiran Republic. And it's like, Oh, they are an inferior race. Their technology is rather behind. You know, there's this little throwaway right at the beginning of, um, beginning of part two. And it kind of brought home this thing of like the Hesperians really are just kind of looking at you and they don't see you as human. You're like a thing to study. And it was just an interesting thing. And that, you know, they, they something similar happens in part three here with um, with Neja and Vaisra. One of those foreshadows that they'd figured out ways to combat shamanism or to quell the shamanic powers, right. if I'm remembering correctly. So I think it served that purpose as well. Mm-hmm. But it definitely helps drive home some of those themes of colonialism, as you were saying. Right. And it's always interesting, like, when we're so tight into Rin's perspective, to get um, other points of view is always, it becomes super interesting. So to see how the Hesperians, like, their writing style, and this idea that it's, like, a memo, and it's very formal, like, analytical writing, it's like, <laughs> it was just, like, a fun little interlude. And then the same thing with Neja and Vaisra. Vaisra's, like, kind of, I guess, he's, like, kind of drunk, right? He's, like, uh just stay away from the dragon, all right, buddy. <laughs> and it's kind of foreshadowing the um, the 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 dragon here, and, and how powerful he is, and how ominous he is, and that's kind of where this part three kicks off. Is that Rin faces 
Neja's full power. I mean, she's already fought Neja a couple times and has lost to him. She got a little bit of a victory when the mountain blew up and she was able to swat away all the all the flying ships and all she the... had the opportunity to kill him at yes. the I guess that was the end of part one. So too. they've both had these opportunities to kill each other and they both walked away, which is um <laughs> kind of interesting. It's a bit dramatic. I liked it. You know, I was like, Yeah, there's something like they know they need each other, but they don't quite understand why kind of a thing. And, you know, they're very conflicted. And this whole war is such a mess that it's good to see Rin and Neja still struggling a little bit with their morality, even to the end. Right. I think this, this, these moments with Rin where she, she isn't able to actually pull the trigger because they're so rare. They, well, I think they're one of those, they could be a bug. They could be a feature. Yeah, thing. yeah. It's like they're. It's basically do you, do you buy it, right? And I think there's that moment where she she could have killed Neja, and I think part of me was like, oh, like I'm not sure yeah. if I buy that Rin can't do this thing. So yeah, these are very like typical like movie book moments where it's like you're fighting this whole battle for all this time and you guys are living these horrible miserable lives the whole point is to kill the person and you finally like are standing over them and then you can't bring yourself to do it and that happens like three times in this book you're like i don't know how to like these moments like as readers we're so prepared for these moments that you're kind of almost like is this something Rin would do? Like Rin has fought against the typical story tropes and how you should mm-hmm. be a protagonist and how you should deal with other characters this whole time. And it's only Neja that for some reason she keeps going back to the mold. And too. Sudaji in the end of the dragon Republic. Those are like right. the two moments. Yes. Yes. She can't finish, close the deal on her either. Right. Which, <laughs> but I guess she kind of saw something in Daji, like there's something more to her, her purpose, and who knows. But yeah, I'm agreeing with you. These moments to me read like typical like story structure. Like I want to have the conflict, I want to show the change in power, but I don't want to actually commit to killing the character right now. <laughs> kind of things about them. Right. It just well, felt like I a think... very stereotypical story moment, you know. For sure. And also my reaction for the most part when I was reading it, I understood why, hey, Neja's not going to die on page whatever it was, 130. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I was thinking the feature side of this bug versus feature argument is that the fact that she's so ruthless generally but can't do this particular thing can potentially show how much of a weakness she has in interactions with those characters, meaning Sudaji and then uh, Neja especially. So it's like, does this help show you like there's something up here that you just can't do it? And I think by the end of the book, she's like, what, 21 or something? So she's still like really young too. Not like that really plays a part in Rin's character at all. She could be any age, really. She's just born in this wartime she just had to age quickly, but you know it's also her inexperience with romantic feelings that could be conflicting her um, ability to deliver. Didn't stop her with Suji. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but Suji's different. Suji, unfortunately, met Rin too late in the game. <laughs> <laughs> you had to meet her by, by Synagogue to really uh, stand a chance. <laughs> That's true, and he had a brutal ending. yeah that was a creative way to kill a character i was wondering if she took that from somewhere in history i mean she must have she took so much of it from history so yeah but oh and visor too also had a brutal ending she like kisses him yeah i loved that and fire down his yeah i really like that that happened in this part three as well she like I get, like we saw Viser before as like this untouchable sitting on the throne guy, and now we see him like in the wreckage, like on the shore or something, and he's t- totally vulnerable. And he's like, you know, he keeps it together for the most part, but you can tell he's kind of cracking at the seams. And then what is it? Rin chooses to like 
kiss him and breathe fire into his insides it's like a cool way to go I think there was some, um, I don't know, Rin was just processing some stuff at that moment. Yeah, it feels like there's something going on with Rin that it's left mostly implicit. There's almost this like repressed sexual energy to most of her so interactions where she is subservient to people. Right. Uh, I mean, Alton, uh, Neja maybe there's some subservience there, but then she like pretty much says she was attracted to Visra. It's like for some reason she, when she is controlled by people, she becomes attracted to them. It seems like, like maybe it's some sort of self-worth bit. Like she obviously struggles with her own self-worth and these people who treat her the way she kind of sees herself end up being the people she's attracted to often times very true so that like bye vice <laughs> i thought that was a cool moment definitely like you said some implicit character stuff with rin is so complex at this point that yeah. it's just any any character interaction with these older characters is super interesting but you know with the trifecta gone she decides she's gonna make her own shamans that are subservient to her basically and that goes pretty well she gets a couple pretty powerful shamans out of the deal and that helps her continue her campaign victories working her way back to Neja's stronghold in Arlong and (laughs) it's a huge face-off in Arlong and all those shamans die pretty much and uh, I don't know what happens to that one that had the healing abilities I don't know if that one yeah that one might have gotten away okay but none of the other ones did. It's interesting to think about. <laughs> I totally forgot about that one. And yeah, I guess she probably made it out all right. And that's kind of nice that there's the one who actually has healing powers is the one who yeah. potentially made it out <laughs> That's true. That's very helpful. Right? You know, there's there's the last the last shaman out there somewhere, and it's the one with the power to heal. I mean, it's also a loose thread if part of what the Hesperians are trying to do is wipe shamanism off the face of the earth. There's someone who then is just roaming around knowing the things that Rin taught her and having these powers. So, yeah, it's interesting. But, I mean, maybe we missed something, but I'd find surprising if both of us missed that this character actually died. I don't remember. I really don't. Um, I'd have to go back and consult the books, but I'm pretty sure that character managed to make it out i really do but i could be wrong um not staking my reputation on it so tweet at us is a spoiler dm us on insta or something oh yeah 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 don't spoil it for anybody yeah. if you can avoid it uh that'd be great that's true all right and then that, that basically brings us to what we talked about at the top of the episode you know we're rin's manages to hold off the dragon and then she's dealing with having this power. She goes back to Takane. The poppy fuels burn is that great moment that you brought up where she couldn't stop fires. She could only make them. And then we get to the beautiful ending of this book, which we did a a good job covering. I feel. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that too. I mean, are there things that you feel like are, left to discuss here or at we at the beautiful ending of this podcast as well um i guess you know i gotta say r.i.p bin bin you were too sweet and innocent for this world bin bin as you all know from reading (laughs) the poppy war series is the little white dog that they used to test the poison for rin's first meal as empress (laughs) and it eats the poison and then it dies (laughs) charles that reminds me we i don't think we talked about venka dying did we? We kept then. we kept mentioning it, but you can't just okay. brush over Bin Bin like that. R.I.P. Now we'll transfer over, and there's a lot of like innocent animals that get killed in this. It's always kind of sad, but that's just the harsh reality of war. Way worse things happen. Um, so we're this whole thing with Petra. Right? We were talking about this idea of like anyone that you trust will ultimately betray you, right? Or anyone you you know relinquish power to will betray you this was something that she had been building up to this whole time she's been getting these notes from Neja that are like always yeah. like 
seemingly like, oh, he knows what's happening, all this other stuff. And you're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, this is a, do I have a spy in the ranks? You know, she's really starting to spiral. And then Venka says this turn of phrase, this idiom or something that, that Rin read in one of the notes and it's that like causes her to just freak for... out. Something like a pig. <laughs> yeah. Someone so, about anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, this whole, since the moment, who knows, probably in the first hundred pages where Venga was like, hey, uh, Neja's sick, and then Neja wasn't sick. I was like, Venka's a traitor. <laughs> like, yeah. I was screaming that internally for probably 500 yeah. pages. And then by the end, I don't think I could be wrong here and correct me if I am, Charles. I don't think it's ever resolved who the actual traitor was. It's not but resolved. By the end, I, I lean toward that it was actually. Kite, and I don't know if traitor is the right word for it, but that he was the one leaving the notes. Right. I like to think that that? I was, I was suspecting Venka. Venka was a possibility for me for a long time. Like you said, there's some inconsistencies with what she's done. She's been left to her own devices for too long. You know, there's all this talk about how you can't trust anybody. I'm like, Venka's the perfect one. She's not like Kite, where she's too, where Kite's too invested. She's just enough invested and just enough removed that I suspected her. And so when that moment came where everyone was like, what? I was like, makes a good case. You know, like it's very possible. I would definitely have suspected her, but I probably would have, you know, done a Tyrion, no spoilers, or just like feed them, feed a bunch of people information yeah. and see what comes back, <laughs> you know, like the, to kind of, kind of root out the, but she was too great, like far gone at that point to devise that, you know, that's not a plan that someone whose job is to just destroy things would do, not espionage. But yeah, I mean, I suspected everyone, you know, when, when the author starts the book with like, I hope you have your bucket of tears. I'm like, (laughs) bucket for your tears. I just hope you have a bucket of tears, (laughs) (laughs) a bucket for your tears that like something heartbreaking was going to happen. And the only meaningful relationships are basically at this point, um, Venka, Kite, Rin, Nezha, like that's it. So to watch them all kind of almost unravel at the end was um, the big moment, I guess I, I would say. For sure, Charles. There's this inevitability to to Rin's death, of course, and then to Kite's death as well, because he is bonded to her. Right. And there's something through... interesting there. It's like, is this a betrayal, really? I mean, they're doing what's right, but they're kind of like walking on eggshells around Rin, because like, well there is some of this inevitability of dealing with the Hesperians. Like people are literally starving, like the worst starvation this nation's ever seen. And there's just no food. So like, this is not something fires can fix, which is beautifully shown in in Takami. I think Charles, that's why I was like, I don't know if traitor's the right word and why I do think it was Kite where it's like, first off, the main reason I think it was Kite, it's twofold. One is that Kite was like, kept telling Rin to shut up when she was accusing Venka. Like, Kite was un- <laughs> unnaturally for him, like, angry and not being just, like, pragmatic. Like, well, I guess you could consider. It's like, well, that's probably because he was the one doing it the whole time and knew for a fact that she wasn't and didn't want Rin to kill someone who was innocent. And I think that the other bit is that in that ne- Neja epilogue, he says... Uh, and there's no world where Rin died and Kite remained alive because Kite, the third party, the in-between, the weight that tipped the scale had chosen to follow Rin into the afterlife and need and leave Neja behind alone. So I think that is the closest we're going to get to a reveal of who it actually was. So I'm kind of as strong as you can without it being explicitly right. stated. I feel like it probably was Kite. And Kite has a long-standing relationship with Neja as well. Even though they're on opposite sides of the war, Kite has never been an enemy to Neja, even though he is the enemy. You know, that's that's another interesting part of Kite's relationship. I don't know if Kite would, like, knowingly have Rin read those letters. You know, I, I think he would understand that Rin would just become crazier with the or maybe he saw it as a necessary thing to get her information but why wouldn't you know Neja just write to 
to Kite and not not to Rin and and have Rin like continue to become parent to increase her paranoia, you know. But I do think there was a little bit of collusion there, especially towards the end. And we know like there's that moment like after the battle where they have those drinks at night right after the battle, and Kite was expect like led Rin to Neja, you know, like that was probably planned between Kite and and Neja. Yeah. So we know that they're talking and that they're amicable and that they're kind of on the same page on how this plays out uh, now that they've now that Rin and Kite have won. So totally on the table for sure. Absolutely. Uh, but I also suspect Venka. He also is the one who <laughs> stops the stops them from eating the food. So yes. you're basically if you're thinking it's definitely Venka, then you're thinking that she was actually gonna let Riverbrin die from the poison, which I'm not mm. sure about. And Venka seemed very surprised. I I feel pretty confident it was Kite. I, but you know, we can agree to disagree. It could be both. I, I, I think it's both. This. I think it's both. I think they were both kind of on eggshells around Rin, and maybe not one of them directly wrote these letters or fed all the information or whatever. Like I'm sure there was also all within the serv within the you know workers in the palace i'm sure there's a thousand and one ways it could have gone but i at by the end i think venka and kite both kind of saw what rin was becoming and what the state of the empire was with rin still in it and um i think rin was the last person to come to that realization <laughs> thankfully she yeah. did it at the right moment but she finally does she <laughs> has that moment where she pretty much tries in one last attempt to destroy everything and i think finally just realizes hey this is not working <laughs> yeah, this will and, only stop if neja delivers my corpse to the hesperians <laughs> yeah <laughs> so she makes the call and as neja comes to realize the world is better for it and not good because the ending is still pretty brutal and dark but it's certainly better without rin the world has a better chance honestly Right. Yeah, it reminds me of one of the lines in the book where it says, do it, take what you want, I'll hate you for it, but I'll love you forever. I can't help but love you. Ruin me, ruin us, and I'll let you. It's just like, beautiful. <laughs> and who was that by, Charles? Who said that? Who said that? I think that was... Oh, that's either Ren or Kite. <laughs> mm. Well... Or maybe Neja. One of those three. I actually didn't remember myself, which is why. <laughs> One I of those three. <laughs> Rin, Kite, Neja. Take your pick. <laughs> In a way, wasn't it all of them? Um, Indeed. Because that's well, what Charles... fire does, Dylan. It consumes. It takes everything. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, did you have that like written in your notes to say and then you're like, oh, this thing's starting to close out. I should I should just say that. <laughs> You could just, you know, take that soundbite and put it at the end of anything Dylan says throughout this whole episode. <laughs> That's what fire does, Dylan. It burns and consumes. <laughs> and then it's, you're spot on there, Charles. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah. It's the, like, autocomplete, uh, like, algorithm for friends talking fantasy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? We need, we need a soundboard. Yeah. It's, that's well said, Charles. <laughs> We'd be on the Dylan one. That's right. Think about fire, Dylan. Is that it burns everything. All right. Ah, well, that's it, everybody, right? That brings an end to an exciting series. It, it, it unconventionally, like Rin, forced its way into our lives. It, <laughs> it was something that we unceremoniously just shoved into the schedule, shoehorned it in. And now no friends pitching fantasy at all. It's yeah, it bypassed friends pitching fantasy. Very besides true. Mistborn, that but that was our first ever book, right? And Emperor's Soul. Oh, true. But which was a, a collab, not yeah. a series though. And then now we have um, Burning God, which is sandwiched in between our you know Book of the Ancestor reading. You know, very much on brand with this whole this whole series. So. We were very happy to have made it work and to have read it in a timely manner. This is the first time I've read a book that had just come out in a long time. It was fun. I enjoyed it. So thank you everyone, one and all, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy 
Podcast. This has been your hosts, Charles and Dylan. If you like what you heard today, reach out to us on social media. We're the FTF Podcast with the number one at the end on Twitter and the FTF Podcast for Facebook and Instagram. You can always shoot us an email at theftfpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Send us out messages. Justice for Bin Bin, everybody. Let's do it. Um, Hashtag justice for Bin Bin. <laughs> Hashtag justice for Bin Bin. That sweet, innocent pup did not deserve to eat poison. You could have fed that poison to anybody. Or just not eat the food. How about that? <laughs> Kill Bin Bin. Anyway, everybody, um, thanks for listening. Let's see. What else could they do? Toss five stars to our podcast, guys. Go to Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. And drop five stars if you like what you heard. We really appreciate it. I think we've had like seven reviews on Apple Podcasts. So you could be the eighth and it would be super meaningful. So please go ahead and do that. Um, anything else you want to you plug here at the end of it? No. I think we did it. All right. We did it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends.